I grew up in church. I've worked a lot in church. Um, turning 40, you start thinking about things. You're always thinking about things, but now you kind of have like a clear time of going, and here's what's happened the first 40 years of my life. Um, and here's what I hope can happen the next 40 years of my life. Um, and so I'm like, okay, I'm close to like, with Enneagram 8, we don't make it that long in life, so I'm kind of at the halfway point, I know, like, you're thinking, one, you don't know what Enneagram is, or two, you're like, yeah, that's probably right. So, but you know, like, okay, there's a lot of life that's happened, there's a lot more to happen, I want to happen, but one of the things that's just been, like, been peppered throughout my whole life is church, really, from the get-go, well, almost the get-go, uh, it was in, I was in Iran the first year of my life, not a lot of churches in Iran, but from there on, and, and as I think about, like, all the things that I remember of church, it's these visions they would have and these, these purposes they were about, and I would hear a lot about discipleship, and I'd hear a lot about building community, and then I would see all these books about discipleship and community, or I'd see all these books about how to do worship and five steps for this, or great experiences in a prayer life for that. And at some point in time, you get through the 20th or 30th of those books, and you're still trying to find the next book. Or as a church, you're still trying to unpack and show, we have the secret sauce with this thing. Can anybody relate to that? Like growing up in church around those things, around those edges. And you can't help at some point in time to kind of question, like, what's going on? Like, what are we actually doing here? Like, what is the purpose of all these things we keep trying to invest in? And in turn, what your assumption always is, at least what you're told, is that it's your fault if it's not happening. And so, okay, something's wrong with me that it's not happening because this church has the secret sauce and, and whatever else. Um, and so as we were reimagining Christ City Church a few years ago with all that we were coming out of, I realized I didn't want it to be gimmicky. I didn't want it to be... Um, like three steps, and this is how it happens for you exactly. I wanted to have some flexibility, but I also wanted it to have core. We wanted to have core of what it was about. Like we want you, you know, with our vision and mission, our vision is uh, that, um, that we want to be a place to belong and a place to know God. Great. But then we need like, so what does that kind of look like? And we felt like, well, it looks like making disciples, but what do you mean when you say make disciples? Because clearly, ultimately, what we mean is that you just follow Jesus. Like, is Jesus, like that song we sang, is, is Jesus the one that you want to interact with? And if not, why? Does it, does it mean you have to? Just, that's the question. If somebody showed up in your life and said, I can guarantee you, I can give you the life you've always wanted. Like, not like Joel Osteen or Oprah promises, but like, I can really give you the life you wanted. Not if you buy my book and meditate for this amount of time, but I can see your life and give you things you're looking for. Would you not say yes to that? Because every one of us are looking for more than what we have. And we take our shots at money or whatever else in life, and if it works, great. If not, though, we're still wanting more life. We're wanting more life around the places we were harmed. We want to heal. We're wanting more life in the places where we're lonely. We want comfort. We're wanting more courage in the places where we have fear. Like, all of that's about more life. And yet, if you don't have it, where do you go to get it? Or here's the question, if you once had it, which we'll see, and you lost it, how do you get it back? And for us as a church, I think that you could 
throw a rock and hit plenty of churches, and if you're willing to be there, you can get a lot out of it. There's nothing ultimately special about us. It's just the fact that we're willing to make room for a lot of different views and for you all to get to show up here. But ultimately, every church's, I hope, desire is that you get more of the life you were made for. That when Jesus talks about sozo in the Greek, life that is life, that we don't look over it and just go, ah, that's nice that somebody said that 2,000 years ago. That we don't just go, well, I grew up in church and hold it, heard it my whole life. Like at some point you have to go, no. Like I, I really want more. Like I really want more around this addiction or around this seemingly broken relationship or around my incompetencies, around parenting, whatever it may be, I want more. And this sermon's about more because the mission statement for us is become followers of Jesus who recover their lives. That's the first part. We put ourselves out on a limb as a church by stating that. That the very first thing that we bet on that you were made for and we want for you and we're going to fight with you to go find is your life. And yet, even if we say that, what do we mean? Recover your life. And so what I want to do this morning is just try to unpack what this means and look like. You know, we pulled, not out of thin air, that idea of recover your life. We pulled it from Matthew eleven twenty eight. It's on the screen. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And I love it how it's said in the message. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. Like, have you ever noticed you hit, like, the weekend? Like, it's Labor Day weekend. You're supposed to be able to rest a lot. And here's what you know deep inside. You will not get enough of it by Tuesday. Like, you know it. There's nothing you can do to make it happen. A lot of you are new parents in this room. You know, or it's hitting you at least, you're not going to find it. You deserve rest, you're not owed rest, and you probably won't get rest, but you still deserve it. So what are you going to do? A lot of you have had so many hard moments happen in your life time and 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 time again, you keep going like, when's my break? Like, when's the break from life going to happen? And then when you read Jesus, he's like, well, it's as simple as coming to me, and then I'll give you rest for your weary souls. Are you burned out? Are you heavy laden? I'll help you recover your life. And I think this passage that we're going to look at this morning is going to help us because the core of this mission statement, becoming followers of Jesus who recover your life, it only works if you're needy. You need to hear this. If you hear nothing else, this is it. It only works if you're needy. Now, we are the, we are the 1% we are in the 99th percentile, so the 1% in the history of the world of the most affluent, upperly mobile, non-needy people that have ever existed. The fact that people in the middle class, in fact, we even have a middle class, but the fact that people in a middle class can live without need, listen, you're not living in Flint, Michigan. You know this, Memphis has the best water, like, around you don't, if you're new to Memphis, quit buying bottled water, all right? You're not going to die. You might live more. Like, it's incredible. You don't have to think about those things. A lot of us in here have discretionary income, meaning you can, like, buy stuff when you go to CVS or the mall or 
I'm sorry, it's uh, 2019. You don't go with them all. So, like, but wherever you go, <laughs> you're like, you know what? If I kind of want that, maybe I can get that. There's never been a people that are more, like, self-sufficient. And yet the stories of the Bible only work if it's read by people who are needy, which is why we've tried to do things like take the Beatitudes and make them spiritual only. Yeah, there's a spiritual aspect to it, but when Jesus builds his fantasy team, his first round pick are poor people. That's what he wants, people who deal with poverty. That's how Jesus starts his team. His second round pick are whiners, like the people who are the neediest of the bunch. That's what Jesus is interested in because he realizes something. The gospel only makes sense if you're really, really needy. But what do you do when you don't need anything? Like maybe you need a few more followers on Instagram, but that's it. What do you do when you're so self-sufficient? Well, what will happen is we'll miss out on recovering our lives. So let's look at this here. How do we do it? How do we get there? I don't do this a lot anymore, but I'm going to give you the old school thing, and that is I'm going to give you three observations, three things in this passage that I see as important, but I promise you I won't end with a poem. I will end with a reading from C.S. Lewis, but it's not a poem. So there you go, old school. First is this. We must cry out. We must cry out. Let's read these first few verses again. After Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. Begging. Now, let's pause for a second. You think about this. In an agrarian culture, society, which means all hands on deck with the land. Like, we got to, like, we got to have the fields, cultivate the fields, plant the seeds, harvest the seeds at the right time. Like, everybody's working in harmony together. And it takes the ability to do labor. Well, if you can't do labor, what are you then to society but a burden? And because you're such a burden, and even their faith is so much work, there's a whole concept created and theology that is created that anyone who is born blind must be judged by God because their parents sinned or someone else. So we have a person who's begging. We, have a, we actually see that in John 9. We have a person who deals with a handicap in life. It's not their fault. We know from science and as maturing like people what happens, that there are things in the body. And, and so we know this person is blind. We know that they are not less than, but in a culture where it's agrarian and there's rules and regulations and ideas and theologies around God, we know this person deals with a lot of shame, that they are dead weight. And they would always be crying out. So he's a beggar. He's a beggar. And he's needy. And so it says, when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, the stories of Jesus are passing like wildfire all throughout Palestine, Israel. Jesus all the way from the backwoods of northern Palestine and Galilee, right? Like this is like going out to the countryside here in Tennessee. That's where Jesus was from. So he's from the countryside, a good country boy, but there's a lot of things happening out there. And all of a sudden, it starts making its way into the city. And so this, this beggar, this man who deals with, with blindness is like, oh, I've heard of this. 
Maybe something could happen. And Jesus wasn't the only magician, which by the way, that's what they thought of him. It's healers, magicians. He wasn't the only magician. I don't believe Jesus is a magician. Don't worry. But just put the Baptist thing away. Don't worry. Like, I'm not going to. All right. So, but he's like, he's like a magician and he's going to do something and heal you. Like there's been others like Jesus that have come through town. It's like a traveling circus. And this beggar's tried there. But he heard it's Jesus of Nazareth, some big time miracles happening. So he, he screams out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And what happens immediately? But many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, Jesus, think about this. What it tells us is that Jesus is rolling deep with the posse. Like he's like 10 rows wide on both sides of people who are just like, we're with this guy and hope this guy's with me. All right. So they're going along. So there's a lot of people talking. It wouldn't have been quiet. So it means that this person here, this beggar is going to have to really like let it out, like really let it out for Jesus to hear him. And so he cries out to him. Now, let me ask you, because you, you hear the response. How many times do you think he's done this before? And how successful have these cryouts been before? I can tell you probably a lot. And we know because he's still begging and blind, then they have had zero success. That's what we know. So I just want you to think about this. What would that do to a person over time? They just keep asking for help, and they don't know how it's going to help them. There's an interesting study done with some Russian orphanages years ago. Um, and what they found was that it was almost a phenomenon of sorts in these orphanages, that they'd go into the infant room where all the cribs were set up, and it was dead silent. Dead silent. Now, if you have a baby, you know something. Babies ain't silent right? Like babies talk, babies got things to say, baby needs things. Matter of fact, you actually want a loud baby. I know you don't really want it because it keeps you up, but it's better than having a quiet baby because here's the thing. When babies come out of the womb, they're not smoking a cigarette, talking in a French accent and talking about their existential crisis in life and how they're going to solve it in a few months. Babies come out of the womb demanding life. You want that baby crying. You want that baby reaching. You want that baby grasping because that baby knows something from the get-go with a 99% limbic brain, that baby knows it was meant for life. And it doesn't have the words yet. So it's going to cry out. And guess what a, a good parent gives that baby? It's a beautiful scene when the mother brings the baby in. It's beautiful. And so that baby now is comforted. And when that baby is growing, it keeps reaching out for these two or one figures in their life that are saying, you are my provider. You're God. That baby does nothing else. Like, you're the one taking care of me and created me, and I'm going to keep crying out for you to help me. Because we were made for neediness. We were made to be Needy, but here's the thing that that rough and or Russian orphanage tells us. If you deny someone's neediness, neediness enough, what will happen? They will quit being needy. And that was the disturbing part of this sociological study in the orphanages. These babies quit being needy. Let me tell you something. A baby can't take care of itself. So if a baby stops being needy, guess what a baby does? A baby dies. 
So the very first thing a human's ever meant to have is be needy and cry out for help and then to keep getting the help because they're gonna die otherwise. This is why even to this day with Charlotte, she's entered this, my daughter's entered this phase where she says my name, but it's like nails on a chalkboard sometimes, right? It's not like, hey, daddy, hey, daddy. It's like, daddy, you know, she's like in the next room and I'm like, I'm right here. What's up? You know what I mean? She's like, daddy, daddy, daddy. Like she'll say like, and she'll have like a paragraph with like 30 words that are daddy. Like, you know, daddy, color and brook, daddy, daddy, crayons, daddy. And I'm like, oh man, like what is going on here? Now here's what I know. That's my internal thing, right? But here's what I also know. I know that her, her frontal lobe to be nerdy and I know her limbic are trying to make a connection. And that is she's made for neediness in the back. She knows that. But she's wondering how far can she go with her neediness? So she's going to just keep being needy because she's made for it. The question will be this. Will I deny her need or meet her need? And what happens for a lot of us as parents, we kind of just, we look for, long for the day for the kids to be quiet. And yet the truth of the matter is, like that child was meant to be needy. It's not a normal thing to be seven, eight, nine years old, y'all. And this is part of some of your stories, right? And you just like not reach out for help. That's not a normal, it's a norm, it's the norm, but not meant to be the norm. It's what we're given because everything is too much, so I have to be self-sufficient. But nine-year-olds aren't meant to be self-sufficient. They're meant to say daddy and mommy a lot. Even when they become teenagers, they're meant to be able to come and ask questions. But a lot of us have learned in life, I can't ask questions, I can't ask for help. And in turn, what happens is, is that we end up dying inside because we were meant for neediness. So guess what happens when we come to know Christ, what we'll do? Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Now let me prove to you what a good decision you made by being the most unneedy person you ever met. So the question is, do you cry out for Christ? And if not, what's happened in your life to convince you otherwise? Well, maybe here's one thing. It's the second thing. You have to not just cry out, but you have to also state your need. Let's look back here. It says, Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man. Cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. And then Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. What do you want me to do for you? I almost titled the sermon, What Do You Need? But I felt that was too much of my inner Bieberite to like title a sermon after one of his songs. Like, what do you want me to do for you? What an off-putting question. You ever, had, you ever had somebody like just say to you, hey, what do, what do you want me to do for you? Um, not ask that question? Like, I don't know. <laughs> what do you need uh, for you to quit talking to me? You know, like there's these reactions we have that we don't want to do with someone who's willing to, to like help us. Um, it's uh, one of the things I do on the side here, not only pastoring, but there's an organization called Tin Man where we help people work through the stories and narratives of their life. And so this past week, I was working with six guys 
for three days doing like 12-hour day deep narrative work in their lives. And one of the things we ask regularly when we're in these kind of cocoon spaces is, what do you need? What do you need? What, what can I do anything for you? And just like, you know something's turning up here, but there's nothing coming out. We don't know what to do when someone's willing to be with us in our need. And here's the thing. We have this person who's saying they're needy and then they're called. So now they have to state their need. What is the need? I want to see. Now think how much pain and memories are attached to that statement. I want to see. Like when this guy's younger, think how often he was willing to be like, I want to see, I want to see, I want to be engaged. And you get shut down and shut down and shut down and shut down over and over again. It probably takes a lot for this person to say, I want to see. Which, by the way, if you and your neediness throughout life have been shut down enough times, guess how difficult it's going to be for you to actually state what you need. It's going to feel like you're lifting 800 pounds. Because it's not normal to be needy. It's normal to be self-sufficient and then like, don't be a bother. So Jesus says to this person, what do you need? Now, it's scary to state your needs to another person who may or may not help you, but it's even scarier to state your needs to God, isn't it? Because what if God doesn't answer you or do for you what you're looking for him to do the way you want him to do it? Because how many times have we cried out to God saying, God, help me? We have Job 30, verse 20 here. You know the story of Job, right? Job's this guy who's had everything taken away. Life doesn't work. He's wrestling with his relationship with God. And he makes this statement. I cry out to you, God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. Dang. Without a show of hands, how many of you can relate to that? I cry out to you, God, but you do not answer. And I see you, but you merely look at me. You know, you experience that enough times, you'll quit being needy, even with God. But then you have other stories in the Bible, like David in Psalm 138, where he says, when I called, you answered me, you greatly emboldened me. Now, isn't this how the church is divided up so many times? You have those where God has never answered, and you have those where God seems to answer all the time. Like, you have those who's like, God is good all the time, all the time. There you go. That's right. You've been in church a minute. Not at this church. We don't say that here, but you've been in church. <laughs> and then you have the other side where just give me a, 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 a dirk, and somebody will walk around and cry for me, and I'll pay them. You know what I mean? Like, you have this other side, because life doesn't work, which is more probably in this church. <laughs> like, you, you experience life not working enough times, you start developing this idea that you don't need to be needy, but then you try to start taking it to God. What do you do when you pray the hundredth prayer and God's not listening? What do you do when you're, when you're in your 30th year and walking with Christ and life hasn't changed? And then someone gets up in front of you and talks about, just cry out to the Lord and you'll recover your life. What are you going to do except have to walk away and say, not here? Because what's happened for many of us, we have brought these very messy situations of life to people who give us very superficial responses. 
but because those people were higher up in positions and closer to God, quote unquote, a pastor, a leader, someone who discipled us, we thought, well, I guess that's the answer and something's wrong with me. But what you didn't know is that they're not getting their prayers answered either. They're just willing to live with more cognitive dissonance than you are. Cognitive dissonance meaning like you know it doesn't work, but you convince yourself to work because everything in you wants to belong and matter because you're made to belong and matter. But you know, you got to be needy when you belong and matter. So you never really get to belong and matter because you can't be needy because you can't cry out. I know that was a long, confusing sentence, but it, it makes sense, I promise. I think a lot of us have had some really crummy help from others around some really difficult things in life. And I think it's really hard to heal when you have superficial responses to unanswerable moments. And yet, friends, at some point in time, we have to let him heal us. You can't walk around like Sir Robin from Holy Grail, right? Not Sir Robin. Who was the person he fought? Sir Robin? You don't remember. I don't remember either. Only a flesh wound? Thank you. Yeah, gets his arms cut off. Only a flesh wound. That's how, we repro- that's how we respond to life. Cut off my arm. Only a flesh wound. Cut off my legs. Only a flesh wound. Come back here and fight me. Don't be chicken. Some of you are too young to appreciate what I just gave you. That's so sad to me. Like we don't want to miss out. And at some point in time, friends, and this is why there's a danger that if you go from order to disorder or um, construction to deconstruction, if you, if you don't let yourself be healed in your deconstructed spiritual places, then the best you can hope for is to be a cynic with some good timing on jokes. But ultimately, cynics are really annoying if they keep staying their cynicism. It's called a bad comedian. At some point in time, we have to let him touch us and heal us. And I could think of no better story of how that plays out than in the voyage of the Don Treader. You probably remember this story if you've read it, but it's one of C.S. Lewis's books, The Chronicles of Narnia. And there's this really annoying kid named Eustace. Like he's bratty, right? Like bratty, bratty. And Eustace is, he doesn't listen. He just kind of goes off on his own. And at some point in time, he, in his lust, like becomes this dragon on this island, and he's stuck there, and he can't get out of being a dragon. And so this is kind of where we pick up here. Then the lion said, lion being Aslan, but I don't know if it spoke. The lion said, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And then he began pulling the skin off. It hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peeled off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab off a sore, it hurts like Billy O but it's such fun to see it coming away. Such a little boy response. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off. And just as I thought I'd done it myself, 
the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And here I was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than all the others had been. And there was I, smooth and soft, a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I'd had skin on, no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And after that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I had turned into a boy again. Jesus doesn't harm because Jesus respects boundaries. But walking with Christ and letting him heal you sure hurts. I have to tell people regularly, I'm not going to harm you. I respect your boundaries. But it's impossible to be in a relationship with another human and not be hurt. It's impossible because, listen, the good things in life hurt. Like, did you know that working out really hurts? Like, it really hurts. Did you know that, like, running is not fun for the first mile or two or the rest of them? Like, did you know that? <laughs> or did you know that going and lifting weights, um, like, your body gets really angry the next day? Says things to you, smarts off, that kind of stuff. Did you know that eating the right kind of foods for you doesn't feel good or taste good? No matter how much they try to package that stuff, it doesn't taste good or feel good. Because ultimately, the good things in life come out of some pain. What's the line? No pain, no gain? There you go. Like, it comes out of the pain. But we have such a low threshold of pain because the pain we're used to are people who harm us. And so we go, well, I don't want to do that then. So we get adverse to pain. Or we try to find our salvation in pain by becoming a masochist. But both are just extremes. If you're going to heal, friend, and you're in this place of deconstructing your life, but you're also becoming this horrible cynic and you can't be needy, I want you to know something. It is going to hurt so bad when you let Jesus do it. It's just going to hurt. It's going to be like Aslan taking his claws through the scales of a dragon to remove that knobbly stuff off of you so that you can get back to being that boy, that girl, that needy child again. And I don't know what it's going to take for you. I know what it's taken for me, and it's taken a lot, and it still does every day. I mean, it takes people in my life who are willing to hold me to it. It takes therapists and others who are willing to call me out on it. It takes a, a, my wife, Suzanne, who's not willing to be codependent with me. Like, it takes a lot of people to get to this place, which then means you'll have to reconsider the people you spend time with because maybe they don't want you to go get the life you were made for. Maybe they want you to stay with, the, with them in the life they have because they're too afraid to go for more life. But ultimately, if we want more life, it's going to cost us more things. So lastly, what that means is when we find that life, we have to go and live. And this is where any kind of self-help and any kind of talk therapy that tries to stop here, like, like it can't really help you. Because you weren't made to simply feel better about yourself and then go live your best life now. You never will. Joseph Conrad, he said, it's in your bulletin, the question is not how to get cured, 
but how to live. Look what it says in verse 52. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. I love that part. Followed Jesus along the road. He finally had a posse to join. He finally had someone who's willing to be with him in his need. Do you have that? Do you have a Christ that's with you in your need? And if not, what happened? What got in the way? What convinced you that Christ would not meet your needs? And I don't mean like your prayers of having life work for you exactly the way you want. I don't mean that. That's just wishes. Go get a genie. I mean neediness, someone to walk with you and you get to walk along the road with them. Someone to do life with. This is why I love in the 12 steps, the 12th step in AA Big Book says, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and practice these principles in all of our affairs. If you don't take it and do something with it, guys, it'll ruin. It'll get sour. It won't make sense because you weren't meant to simply be a container, but also a conduit. And that's why even in this room, those of you who've gone to find life and you've gone after it here, you're going to have to go bring other people in so they can get more of the life you got. And I don't mean because it's happening on the stage, but I mean because it's happening in this room. I know your stories. I know what's happening. I know there's a lot of you that are really afraid to actually be okay with Jesus again because you don't know what to do without your deconstructed state. But I know where you are. I see it. There's more life. And others of you are finally willing to leave some of these things handed to you that don't work and step into this kind of ethereal unknown and you're meeting a God there that you never knew that could be with you. It's happening. It's beautiful. So that means you're going to have to at some point in time be willing to go and take it. And that's the point, and that's what I wonder for this church. Can this church be willing to do that? I think so, but it sure costs a lot. So now as we kind of close, we're going to get to practice neediness. And for some of you, this may be a mindset you haven't had in a long time, that when you come and take the bread and drink of the wine, you are remembering something, that you are invited to be a needy person because there is a Christ here that if you're willing to cry out, will touch you and heal you and let you walk along with him on this road. Let's pray. So, Father, we now come before you and pray that you would meet us here. We've set the stage and the table is made for us to get to be needy. And for a lot of us here, that's a big chance we take week in and week out, or maybe even for the first time this morning to go, I'm bringing my need to Christ. I'm stating my needs to him, and he's, I'm going to let him meet me there and heal me to start the process, to be pushed out and go do the work I got to do. So Lord, I pray that you would um, give us that courage, that spark needed, and that we would find what we're looking for in you through our neediness. In your name we pray, amen.